Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The LitFest salons aim to provide provocative, relevant discussions in a dynamic and informal way. There is food, drink, and good old-fashioned audience participation. On June 11, 2013, the topic of the salon was The Contagious Art, Writers Who Paved Our Way. The panel included authors Seth Brady Tucker, William Haywood Henderson, Julene Baer, and David Rothman. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the salon, The Contagious Art. There are our books for sale along with antibiotics in the back, so help yourself. So welcome. Welcome to the salon. This is our second salon. Who, is, who came to the first one? Did you like that Raven poem? Was that good? Yeah. Oh, if you weren't here, you missed it. Ask, ask somebody who raised their hand. It was pretty bad. Um, I'm Mike Henry. I'm the executive director, in case you don't know me, here at Lighthouse. Um, thanks. You're very kind. You're too kind. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce tonight's panel. Everybody okay? Doing all right? Okay, good. Uh, so, The Contagious Art, Writers Who Paved Our Way, with, I have, from left to right, Seth Brady Tucker, William Haywood Henderson, Julene Baer, and David J. Rothman. I'm going to read their bios, they're really short, but first I want to say, um, the description uh, quoted one of my favorite poets, Thomas Lux, and his poem, An Horatian Notion. And the couple of lines are, you do the thing because you love the thing, and someone else loved it enough to make you love it. And that's what we're talking about, right? The contagious art. What made you sick enough? Who infected you and made you sick enough to become, want to become a writer? Is that what we're going to talk about, right? Yes. But we're, we're going to celebrate that, not lament. Okay. So... Um, David Rothman's poems have appeared in Poetry, The Atlantic, The Hudson Review, The Kenyon Review, The Three Penny Review, and scores of other journals. His second book of poems, The Elephant's Chiropractor, was a runner-up for the Colorado Book Award, and he has several new books out this year, including Part of the Darkness and The Book of Catapult, which is for sale, as Dan said. And he also teaches, besides teaching at Lighthouse Writers Workshop, one of our core instructors, poetry instructors and gadflies. Um, he teaches at Western State Colorado University's MFA program. Is that a new name? Did they change their name? Yes. Yes, they did. And yeah. you would think they would have called it Western State University of Colorado, but unfortunately the board yeah. realized that the acronym for that would be WSUC, and they would be called <laughs> We Suck. So that's why it's Western State Getting Colorado Getting my MFA University. at We Suck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a wise idea. Um, Julene Baer is the author of the award-winning essay collection One Degree West, Reflections of a Plains Daughter, and her memoir, The Old Galala Road, will be published by Viking Penguin in 2014. William Haywood Henderson was a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University, and he's the author of three novels, Native, The Rest of the Earth, and Augusta Locke. He's perhaps one of our... He is... Besides one other person, our longest tenured instructor here at Lighthouse. Yes. He's one of the pillars of the Lighthouse. One of the brightest lights of Lighthouse. He is the electricity that... Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) Seth Brady Tucker is a poet and fiction writer from Wyoming whose poetry collection Mormon Boy was published by Elixir Press and is a finalist for this year's Colorado Book Award. Keep your fingers crossed. Are you going to go to Aspen? Yeah. Yeah. I hope you get it. 
Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, Aspen's not bad, though, right? Do they put you up or do they make you stay somewhere? Oh, that's right. Good old Colorado Book Awards. That's wonderful. Do you, you, you must feel really celebrated. Yeah, that's great. Come on out and pay your own way, and you might lose. I'm sorry, that's terrible. Why did I say that? You're not going to lose. The other people might. Please stop me. Um, he teaches at UC Boulder and Lighthouse, and he was once a paratrooper with the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division. Wonderful. Um, a couple things before we get started. You're going to be moderating, Seth? Yes? Yes. You've been, award- yeah, you've been chosen the moderator. Very exciting. Um, a, a couple things. Uh, so every night at LitFest we have something going on, and I need just to mention that really quickly. Wednesday and Friday night this week we have the participant readings. Anybody here who's going to be reading? A couple, one, one person. Two, awesome. Well, it's going to be great. Three, where, where's the third? Don't be shy. Oh, there you are. Okay, excellent. So Wednesday and Friday, 8 o'clock reading, start time? Yes, Porch party, 8 o'clock reading. Um, Thursday night is, um, this is so, I, I, this is very um, self-help. Yes, you can. Writing in a subjective world salon where they're going to really pump you up and make you excited and make you feel like you can actually do this thing called writing. That what we're going to do at all. Oh, oh, what are you, you, you going to do? Yes, you can. I know you can. Can yes, you can. Nice. You can. I know you Voice can. of skepticism. So, yes, you can, but it's not going. But it ain't going to be easy. Something like that. Okay. All right. I'm trying. Um, and then let's see what else. Uh, Saturday, um, we will have a tribute to uh, two of our fallen comrades. Um, we lost two instructors this year. Um, I hate to start and I hate to such a downer. Um, Jake Adam York and Court McMeal will do a tribute to them on Saturday night. That starts at 7.30 p.m. Yes? Were you shaking your head? Is it? I'm just saying that they were both 40. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. So. Okay. So back to the contagious art. There's no easy segue there. Um, let's give it up for our panelists. All right. Here you go. So if moderating just means I'm passing the microphone down to David to start us off, um, that's it, right? And we can just get into it? All right, you ready? Okay, to- great. It's great to be here. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up because that way I can see you all. Oh, well. <laughs> I'd had enough. Um, I'm going to talk about the American poet Richard Wilbur. And the reason I'm going to talk about him is because I think he's one of the two greatest living American poets, the other one being W.S. Merwin. Um, Wilbur is 92 years old. As far as I know, he's still writing. Uh, I've known him distantly for a long time uh, because he was, when I was growing up, a professor at Smith College where my parents were also teaching and where I grew up. So he was always sort of a presence around there. He's also taught at Wesleyan. He taught at Amherst, where he did his undergraduate degree. He was born, I guess, what, in 1921. He uh, has published many books of uh, poetry and of translation and a number of books of criticism. Not a lot of criticism, but what he has published is excellent. 
Uh, he's been a teacher for much of his life. He served in the military in World War II in the European theater. Uh, he has won the Pulitzer Prize twice. He has been U.S. Poet Laureate when it was called something like Librarian of the Library of Congress before they gave it a name that makes sense uh, once. Um, he's won every other award there is. And I really think he is, one of, he is probably the strongest living American lyrical poet. Uh, and you are probably more familiar with his work than you know. And I'm going to read you what is probably his best-known lyric, which comes from a translation of Moliere, because he's very, known, he's very well known as a children's poet. And uh, he's written some wonderful books for children and as a poet, but also as a translator of um, 18th century French poetry, especially the drama, especially Moliere, Voltaire, Racine. Um, and uh, tell me, put your hands up if you recognize this. Glitter and be gay. Glitter and be gay. That's the part I play. Here am I in Paris, France, forced to bend my soul to a sordid role, victimized by bitter, bitter circumstance. And this, of course, is the beginning of this wonderful poem, Glitter and be gay, that was set by Leonard Bernstein um, in his setting of... Uh, of uh, Candide, which is so famous with that fantastic music, uh, which I hope most of you have heard. And if you haven't heard, well, go, go screw yourself. Go out and get it and listen to it. Jesus. <laughs> so uh, he's... <laughs> Sorry. He's... Uh, I would say that the most important thing is the, uh, is, the, is the lyrical poetry. And that poem is wonderful. Uh, it's a great lyric. He's, he's very gifted at this. He basically says, I simply get up and just try to write five lines a day. That's all. Unlike these fiction writers, oh, you know, I write 3,000 words a day. It's like, come on, what do you, what do you, that's just excessive, really. <laughs> How do you have any time left to drink? The, uh, this, uh, Wilbur strikes me, uh, you know, as usual, Harold Bloom's comments will not always completely illuminating or helpful. He says, he belongs in the company of Frost and Stevens, Wallace Stevens and Robert Frost. And that's, that's an apt characterization because uh, Wilbur uh, seems to combine the best of both. Although he lives in New England and has for much of his life, for many, many decades, longer than most of us have been alive, he's not a rustic and he certainly doesn't pay a lot of homage to the place, although there's a lot of nature in his poetry. At the same time, he has a deep kind of aesthetic uh, commitment to a very pure, um, clear, gentle beautiful aestheticism, but it's not as radical or as abstract as Stevens. When he was a young man, he was a little bit more intellectually um, aggressive, perhaps, in a way, uh, and, and the poems were a little bit more difficult. But as he, as he matured, his poetry became more accessible. And I have about 20 copies, 25 copies here of some poems. I just want to read you a few of these poems in the, in the hope that they'll catch your eye. So these are... Um, if, if you put about two people on e two or three people on each handout, you'll be fine. And how much time do we have? What, do I have another five minutes or so? I was just going to talk for an hour. Four score and seven years ago. Uh, no, uh, wrong speech. Here are some of his other books, by the way. Um, there's really only two books of criticism, uh, but they're very good. And here's a, here's a translation of the Moliere, if you're curious. Come and talk to me afterwards. And here's one of his wonderful children's books called The Pig in the Spigot. Uh, really wonderful. But I'm just going to read some of these poems from his collected poetry. And um, 
what, five minutes? Is it, yeah? So this is a, this is a, they're sort of in chronological order. And the first one is, these are all some of his very famous poems. Um, and they are like him, gentle, erudite, sophisticated, gracious, and extremely well made. He is a master of meter. He is a master of lyrical forms, as you will see. So this is a poem called Love Calls Us to the Things of This World, and it is about looking at laundry. (laughs) The eyes open to a cry of police, and spirited from sleep, the astounded soul hangs for a moment, bodiless and simple as false dawn. Outside the open window, the morning air is all awash with angels. Some are in bedsheets, some are in blouses, some are in smocks, but truly, there they are. Now they are rising together in calm swells of halcyon feeling, filling whatever they wear with the deep joy of their impersonal breathing. Now they are flying in place, conveying the terrible speed of their omnipresence, moving and staying like white water. And now, of a sudden, they swoon down into so rapt a quiet that nobody seems to be there. The soul shrinks from all that it is about to remember. And there's the darkness hiding under the surface that he doesn't usually talk about, but it's always there. From the punctual rape of every blessed day and cries, oh, let there be nothing on earth but laundry. Nothing but rosy hands and the rising steam and clear dances done in sight of heaven. Yet, as the sun acknowledges with a warm look the world's hunks and colors, the soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body, saying now in a changed voice, as the man yawns and rises, bring them down from their ruddy gallows, let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves. Let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone, and the heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits, keeping their difficult balance. And if that isn't a good poem, they don't exist. It's really something. Um, I, I'm going to skip. I just want to read um, one more. These are, I just gave you four of them from different parts of his career. Just to give you a sense of this man's technical, astonishing technical ability. This poem, Lilacs, which is on the third page. Arrest that man. And, uh, they they uh, are... Uh, um, there are... Uh, this is an imitation of Anglo-Saxon strong stress meter. It's stunning. It's beautiful. He's a very fine scholar, but he doesn't wear his learning on his sleeve. And you'll notice that three out of the four stresses in every line, two hemi-sticks, alliterate. Not always perfectly. He plays with it. But he is really doing it. And it just shows you what, uh, if you think this is easy, try it yourselves. Uh, it's amazing. And this is called The Lilacs. And then I'll, I'll be done and I'll just pass it along. And I'll let the poems speak for themselves. If you want an entree into poetry and into American poetry now, Again, Wilbur is, uh, he's unquestionably, as Robert Frost said, he's lodged a handful of poems in the collective consciousness of the language. 
and they're going to stick. There's about a dozen at least, and this is one of them, as was the last. The lilacs. Those laden lilacs at the lawn's end. So you have laden, lilac, lawn's end. Three out of the four alliterating. These laden lilacs at the lawn's end came stark, spindly, and in staggered file, like walking wounded from the dead of winter. We watched them waken in the brusque weather to rot and root break to ripped branches and saw them shiver as the memory swept them of night and numbness and the taste of nothing. Out of present pain and from past terror, their bullet-shaped buds came quick and bursting as if they aimed to be open with us. But the sun suddenly settled about them, and green and grateful the lilacs grew, healed in that hush, that hospital quiet. That's worth the price of admission. Hospital quiet. Goodness gracious. These lacquered leaves where the light paddles and the big blooms buzzing among them have kept their counsel, conveying nothing of their mortal message unless one should measure the depth and dumbness of death's kingdom by the pure power of this perfume. And there it is. Um, As a poet who plumbs the depths with tremendous grace and who gives us always something that is at the same time tranquil and beautifully well-made and ordered, uh, he really is a poet, I think, whose work is going to survive, which is a rare thing. I encourage you to give him a look. Uh, he had a tremendous impact on me when I was younger. Um, and to aspire to make something this uh, graceful is, uh, well, I suppose it's worth, uh, you know, wasting your life. That's what I do. <laughs> so thank you very much. Can you hang on to it for a second? I'm going to get some water. I need some more water. By the way, we will have a Q&A at the end of this, so if you have questions, uh, we can wait more wine. until the end. I spilled mine. <laughs> well, I'm going to also talk about one writer, but first I want to talk about my relationship to books, and uh, maybe by extension, maybe some of you will recognize your own relationship with books. Um, when we say the word relationship, we're we're talking. I forgot to uh, be. What is this? A podcast or something? What happens? Oh, sorry. Well, I'm going to speak about one writer later, but first I'm going to talk a little bit about my relationship to books. And um, the reason I want to talk about this is because when we have a relationship, it's about the heart. And but there is this other side of the relationship with books that some of us have, which is we think about what. Um, how our relationship to books might compare to other people's relationship to books. And when we start thinking along along those lines, that's the ego speaking. And I think there is probably a use for the ego. I mean, I'm pretty certain there is. Um, It spurs us along. It makes us strive in life and so on. But when the ego serves the purpose of making us feel bad about ourselves, when there's nothing we can really do about it, 
it's really a disservice, and it's undermining a very important relationship, one that is supposed to feed us. A relationship is personal. It's about oneness and about connection, and it's definitely about the heart. So I I just uh, would like to give you a little bit of a story from my own past and just encourage everyone to keep that heart center in their relationship to books and, and not be insecure about how little you've read, how slow you read, uh, how little you remember, and just remember that you enjoy reading and that it's fun and it feeds you. I mean, we don't compare our friendships like that and say, well, so-and-so has... Well, actually, we do, don't we? <laughs> you know? And when I was growing up, I had this older brother who read a lot. I need to move the water so I can sit down. I had this older brother who uh, had read a whole lot, and we would go to the library together, and we would check out stacks of books. And when he came home, he would actually read his, and then he was touted as having a photographic memory and as being a genius. Meanwhile, I would have my stack of books, and I would just sort of lie in this easy chair, and I would kind of thumb through the pages, and I didn't really connect with the words. It wasn't, I mean, it's not that I couldn't read, it's just that I wasn't really engaged and I would pretend like I'd read the stack of books, and then they'd go back to the library, and I'd get another stack of books. But there was this one poem that was in this collection of so, sort of encyclopedias that we kept in our living room. And I still remember the kind of mauve glow in that room because we had these sheer curtains over the windows, and the light would come in filtered around the Venetian blinds, and the curtains would just glow with this radiant light, And this room had this mauve glow, and there was this one poem. And it's probably not that great a poem, but I don't think it really matters. It was called, i got to put my glasses on, (laughs) The Arab's Farewell to His Horse. It was by Carolyn E.S. Norton, and I'll read the first verse. My beautiful, my beautiful, that standest meekly by, With thy proud and arched and glossy neck and dark and fiery eyes, fret not to roam the desert now with all thy winged speed. I may not mount on thee again. Thou art sold, my Arab steed. Oh, my God. It just pierced my girl heart, you know. (laughs) And And I was all about horses. And this was the first time that I discovered a piece of writing on my own that excited me. And, and that actually began to cause me to write. I began writing my own poems about horses. And I lived on a farm, and we had a pasture that I would ride my horse across. And there was this one horse I couldn't ride, and, and her name was Flame because she was just too wild. So I wrote a poem about riding Flame across this pasture. And it was like I was one with the pasture, I was one with the sky, I was one with the horse. I was this transcendentalist before I even knew what a transcendentalist was, <laughs> you know? And I think I still am. So I'm still forming these relationships to, to writing, and I think that's one of the really wonderful things about being a writer is that, first of all, I'm not like my other friends who say that they don't make friends very well as they're getting older because all their friendships are formed. I'm making friends with other writers because writers are wonderful about establishing community with one another. And I'm making friends with books all the time. And it's just feeding my life constantly. 
and I won't read anything unless it excites me and feeds my writing spirit. So I want to introduce you to a writer that many of you may not have heard of. Her name is Ellen Malloy. Has anyone heard of this writer? Vicki has. Okay, I had heard of her because I had a friend who had won the Whiting Award about, which is a, this big prize. It's a $30,000 prize. And she won it, oh, back in probably 2000 or right around that time. And she had met at the ceremony, she had met this other writer named Ellen Malloy. And Ellen had also won the award. And then I heard about her because she had written essays in Orion, but I hadn't get, gotten around to, to reading those essays. How many people have read Orion, the magazine? Okay, I, I brought a copy. I brought like four copies of Orion that I want to hand out tonight, and you can just take them home if to whoever wants to grab one because they have the most exciting nature writing, but it's also philosophical. It's at the level, the quality level of anything that you read in The New Yorker, only it's also about nature and our relationship to this planet. So I had read about her and heard about her, but I had never read her until a few years ago. Ellen lived from 1946 to 2004. Uh, She was therefore 48 when she died. She died of an aneurysm, uh, just totally unexpected death. But she wrote four books in her lifetime. The first one was called Raven's Exile, and I think there's a subtitle. A Season on the Green River. It won a regional award. Then there was The Last Cheater's Waltz, Beauty and Violence in the Desert Southwest. It's the one that won the Whiting Award. Then she wrote The Anthropology of Turquoise, Reflections on Desert, Sea, Stone, and Sky. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2003. And she wrote a book called Eating Stone, Imagination and the Loss of the Wild, which was about bighorn sheep. One of these books, and I'm not sure which, was also the L.A. Times Book of the Year. So when I finally did get around her to her, it was like, oh, my God. You know, she was so good. She was passionate. She was funny, informative, uh, at a level that I had never cared to be informed before, but she made it all very palatable about natural history. Um, she was original. She had a, I mean, every sentence is very original, and she had a huge mind. She was philosophical and political. But mainly, I fell in love with her because of her passion. It was the same reason I fell in love with the Arab's farewell to her steed, or to his steed, and that was or to his horse. Okay, and that was because I'm also passionate about the desert, and so we had this shared passion. I want to just read a couple passages from her work. If I can manage all my appurtenances and whatnot. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much. It seems as if the right words can come only out of the perfect space of a place you love. In Canyon Country, they would begin with three colors, blue, terracotta, green, Sky, stone, life. Then some feather or pelt or lizard's back, the throat of a flower or ripple of sunlit river would enter the script, and I would have to leap from three colors to uncountable thousands, all in some exquisite combination of place, possessed by this one and no other. 
Between the senses and reason lies perception. At home or afield, that is where amazement resides, shunning explanation. The subtitle of this book, by the way, is Reflections on Desert, Sea, Stone, and Sky. And the other passage is a longer one, a couple pages, that I chose. And I chose this one because it incorporates those other qualities I mentioned, humor, um, natural history, and that passion among them. And I've had to cut it a little bit because I needed to not go on all night. Asked to describe the character of his state, a Nevadan paused and said, well, it's all out of doors. <laughs> the trouble is, except for the center and north, Nevada has gone indoors. As Las Vegas's ectoplasmic haciendas spread southward into Nevada's wedge-shaped tip, the boonies are shrinking and decompression from the overstimulation takes longer. Not many years ago, the boys could bring the dead bodies to the open desert in the trunk of the Cadillac, dump them in a sandy wash, wipe the dust off their wingtips, and be back in town with the first blush of dawn. The new gangster Disney Las Vegas pushes back the line between city and wilderness, forcing the boys to steer through malls, gated neighborhoods, controlled intersections, forests of injury, lawyer, billboards, construction detours, and speed bumps. They will be lucky to be back in time for their massage at the Venetian. When the bubble heads screw up and you have to rub them out, you may end up driving halfway across California. Bono, the boy says, or the boss says, take them out. The road I take leads from depravity to desolation. I welcomed desolation. It felt like home. I had returned to the empty, quartered spaces of my 1940 roadmap. I had slowly dislodged the neon shrapnel from my fantasy-pelted hide and readjusted to the desert's muted, powdery light. In the high sun, the land distinguished itself by form rather than color. Crimped mountains, sweeping bajadas, broad basins that still bear an affinity with a vanished sea. The last quarter of the Mojave rendered a final asceticism before the land rose, rippled, cracked, and reddened into the Colorado Plateau. On an empty stretch of back road, I pulled over to walk around and imbibe the humbling silence that resided in so much heat and space, a silence broken by a passing flock of songbirds with the sound of dry, rustling grass in their wings. I rubbed creosote leaves between my fingers for their sharp scent and stretched out on the ground to observe whatever sauntered through the first two inches immediately above earth, ants and a darkling beetle, a chuckwalla, Saromalus obesus, or, quote, fat, bad lizard, unquote, which I like to think of as a fat and bad, fat, bad lizard. Faint tail bands mark this one as a female or juvenile. In mating season, an erotic time in Chukwala life, she belongs to a harem lorded over by a tyrant male. Researchers who spend time on the sex lives of lizards say she arouses the male by rubbing and licking him. Bad. She also can wedge herself into a rock crevice, gulp in air, <laughs> and inflate her loose folds of skin so that no predator can remove her puffed-up body from the crack. Fat. 
Mateless and svelte at the moment, this chuckwalla scrambled up a creosote bush and shook it as I got up to leave. Okay, I just want to read one, and I can actually handle all these things, I think. I, I want to read one last paragraph, and that's simply because you cannot read or talk about Ellen Malloy without mentioning Bighorn Sheep, which she was totally fanatical about. Look into the eyes of a domestic sheep, and you will see the back of its head. Look into the eyes of this bighorn, the black, curiously horizontal irises set in amber orbs, and you will see a lost map to place, a depth that we may extinguish before it touches us. The bighorn's tenacity to this paltry remnant of wildland inspires as well as frightens me, for like them, I cannot abandon the geography that feeds my every breath. The creative process, too, can be nothing less than an indestructible fidelity. So basically what Ellen Malloy teaches, and she continues to teach me, is that we need that indestructible fidelity, and it can't come from just loving writing, which I do. I'm very passionate about writing, but it comes from a fidelity to, in my case, a particular place, and from this passion that we feel for our subject matter. I'll take the other one. I did not bring any books to read from, so I'm going to act out parts of Fifty Shades of Grey. (laughs) And I'll need a volunteer. (laughs) Mike, come on up. (laughs) Okay, four volunteers. Um, I was trying to think of, was, was there a book or an author specifically that inspired me to write or that inspired my subject matter? And um, there are certain books where I read them. Um, I read to the lighthouse, and I thought um, I would love to be able to do that. But that's not where my subject matter comes from. You took it literally, though. I went to the lighthouse. I know. Yeah, you did. Huh. I think I'll just stop with that. (laughs) Um, So I was sort of wondering, if I go all the way back, um, what drew me to the books that I love and that I still think about. And um, did those books um, instill in me the subject matter that I write about, or was it the opposite? Did I have a certain obsession, a certain mindset that was waiting for the right books to come along to inspire me? So um, I sort of went through a little, um, I wrote it down because so, I couldn't remember it. Um, I went through and figured out what I write about and then I went through and figured out where those topics might come from or how, um, why certain books stick with me, maybe because of who I was already. So what I write about these days, there are a couple things. Well, there are lots of things. But one of them is siblings. Um, in my family, I have three siblings, and I always write about only children. Um, <laughs> I like my siblings, but... Um, um, so I sort of wondered if, if that had to do uh, – part of what I write about is characters alone in a large landscape. 
And if I come from a large family, and I'm always writing about people being alone, there has to be something at the core of my experience that says um, you're alone, so you're different from your family. Um, another thing I write about is parents. In, in my novel, the parents, my novels, the parents are um, either absent or ultimately too self-obsessed or damaged to be much of help. No one else has parents like that. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, I'm not really sure what that's about. Like, why am I? Why am I sort of? Why am I trying to write a character who's on their own who has to get by without without their parents? Where did that come from? And again, it goes back, I think, to that sense that you're sort of a separate entity. You're not part of, of the family group or clan. I write about Wyoming. All of my novels are at least partly set in Wyoming, although if you were here last night, you'll see I switched it from Wyoming to Montana. Sorry, Wyoming. Um, and why was I attracted to that? Um, well, there's a certain landscape there, and if you're living in a small town, there's a certain danger at the edge of town and right behind the sky all the time. Um, and you're a very small figure in a very large landscape. Um, I should leave this open. Um, and I also write about myth a lot. Or there's sort of a myth beneath the landscape that I write about. Um, so then I thought, well, what are the earliest um, experiences of the natural world, of the world in general, of, and of books? And do, do they match up currently with what, with what I write about? So um, the first one... I'll try to make this quick because this would take years. Um, as I was growing up, um, our family did a lot of backpacking, often in Wyoming. So some of my very earliest memories are being in the Wind River Range, which is, if you know it, is a very rough and beautiful, you know it, very rough and beautiful um, landscape. Um, my dad had been an Eagle Scout. He was all about leading us off the trail. Um, so there was always a little bit of danger there. There's beauty. There's the cold. There's the purity of it. Um, my father was interested in the history of the West, and this is where the first books come in. He used to, as we were, if we were on, in a motel on our way to Wyoming from wherever we were living, um, at night he would read the history to us of where we were going, and it was the history of the Old West. Um, and at night around the campfire, he would sing the worst possible songs <laughs> that were, um, they were just old songs um, from like the 1800s. Um, he sang them pretty well, but they were terrible. But... Um, <laughs> But there was a sense that there was this other life that was lived sort of behind the life that, that we were living. There was always the history of where it all came from. And there were, there were the words that the people used to express their emotion at the time. And later, um, when I was writing one of my books, I think it was the second one, I did a lot of research on what the songs were, what the lyrics were, to get into what the emotion was at the time. Um, a lot of them are really depressing. Um, <laughs> It's always about somebody dying. Um, uh, then my mother was really into, um, and still is into, plant and animal life. Um, and so she was always telling us the names of everything. Um, and she was making everything sort of magical. She was always sneaking off and making bear sounds in the woods and frightening the hell out of us. Um, <laughs> But then, so, so then you grow up thinking, well, everything has a name, and the name means something, and it came from something. And eventually, I would get the guidebooks that not only told you what the name was, but also told you what the, what the myth was behind it, or how it was used by the Native people, so that everything had a context, which is sort of similar to where my father would teach us about the world, that there was always a context to, um, you're not just there. There was always something else that was there before you. Okay, so... Um, 
the first books I remember holding on to and remembering uh, deeply were um, books in which there was a magical sense of the world. Now, that could have come because my mother chose the books to read to us, um, or they could stick with me because that's the way I saw the world. And who, where did it come from? Was it, you know, was I just like my mother, or was it because she, she ingrained it in me? Um, so books like The Wind in the Willows, The Hollow Tree book. Do, does anyone know that book? It's a great book. Um, Winnie the Pooh. There's always a beautiful setting and always a society that's cut off from the greater world, and even to the point where there'll be a whole bunch of people, but none of them are even the same animal. They're all different species. So there's that, that goes back to that sense of sort of being alone. Even when you're in a group, you're alone. That goes back to that family idea that um, you're not really part of the family. Um, but there is a community. Well, you, you're going to find a community that's not related somehow. Um, like there's, there's usually very little sense of family. Each each creature is a different species, and there are hardly ever any parents present. Um, and Winnie the Pooh, there are no parents. Well, there is Kanga with Rue, I suppose. But anyway, it's a whole different thing. <laughs> Mostly, there aren't very many parents. Um, and then by the time I was 11 or 12, I became a, I read, um, I think it was 11, I read the um, Lord of the Rings for the first time. Um, and then I read it every other summer for like five summers, or for five times, I think maybe five or six times I read it, just over and over and over again. And I was really taken with it. Um, uh, and it's another book in which there's a magical sense of the world. There's a deep, deep history to the world. Um, they keep crossing and finding ruins of something that's thousands of years old, and someone will know the history or they won't know the history, um, uh, which goes back to that sense of the way my father had taught us or the way we had learned from the way he spoke about the world, that there's always something behind the world. Um, and there are various elements. Um, Oh, and also that, that it's about a small band of people together. They're, they're not the same species either, most of them. They're moving through the world, um, cut off from the rest of the world, and there's always danger. It goes back to Wyoming. It goes back to um, all the books that we used, that we used to read as kids. Um, and then later, when I had already published two of my novels, I went back and reread The Lord of the Rings because the movies were coming out. So I had to have one last chance to read them before they uh, messed with my... Uh, images. Um, and one thing I found is that he's not that great a writer. Line by line, there's some pretty <laughs> crappy stuff in there. Um, so definitely I wasn't um, inspired by his prose. But then I did find in rereading it that there was a huge amount that um, I'm focused on in my own writing that he is focused on in his. A lot of attention to the food that they eat, um, caring food, keeping the food with them, what the food is like, how the food sustains you. Um, an empty landscape. They're always passing through an empty landscape with that history behind it, which my father had always talked about. Um, the idea of banding together with people who aren't your family, but they become your family. Um, that's definitely something that I've always written about. Um, there's always danger behind the surface of every scene, um, unknown danger or a magical danger, which um, if you go into the mythology of your own world, that comes up. Um, the idea of clans and customs, that you sort of create your own clans and customs, and especially in Augusta Locke, I think I, I wrote about creating your, your own home. Most of that book was about creating your home. Actually, Native was, okay, they're all about that. Um, 
the idea of let's see patterns and and how they how they seem um, to shift on the surface, but they keep repeating over and over again. That's definitely in something in the Lord of the Rings. Um, what else? The special magic of beautiful places. I think that's one of the things that stuck with me the most. Um, was you have these places in the world that you absolutely love, and I love to write about what a place does to somebody. And I think a lot of that came from that idea of going to Lothlorien or something, and that absolute thrill at the foreignness and the beauty and the power of the place. And you can make that, or I tried to make that real for characters. Um, in the real world, when you go into some cow camp in Wyoming, it can be just spectacular, and you think, I never need to leave this little valley. I can live here forever. It's kind of strange. It's beautiful. So um, that's, I think, where the ideas come from. And I don't know which came first. If I was attracted to that book and the other books that my mother read to us because I was already wired that way, or if that's what caused me to be wired that way, I have no idea. But I can definitely link what I write about now to the books that I remember and that I was obsessed by. Um, as a youth. Um, now, of course, it's just all about Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> so as far as prose style went, I'll just, I'm almost done. Um, um, William Faulkner, Virginia Woolf, Guy Davenport, I was writing so closely to their styles in grad school that the professor, my professor would say, you've been reading As I Lay Dying. I mean, he even knew what the book was, not just the author. (laughs) You've been reading Guy Davenport's Apples and Pears. Um, So I was learning, um, and it's useful for anybody, learning um, uh, craft through just writing in someone else's voice. And eventually those other voices, the parts that are them go away and the parts that are you remain. Um, I was never interested in a very plain style, and so the people that I was imitating were fairly rich. And I started out as a poet, which, well, in big quotes, a poet. Um, and I was always interested in, like, Hart Crane and Walt Whitman and Wallace Stevens, all of whom have a pretty rich style. And it's, I think even as their style comes out almost as, like, their own, their own language or their own myth. At least to me, it seems that way. And I always wanted to create something that felt as unique and still in English as a Wallace Stevens poem. That's all. Thanks. Bye. So I, f- I feel like I, I have to tell this story now um, about songs being sung in Wyoming by family members. Are you guys ready for a quick just anecdotal story? Well, if you're not, it's coming at you anyway. So uh, I come from a large Mormon family, and at our reunions, we had to sing a arrival and a, and a leaving song. So when you arrived, everybody in the camp would gather around, and they would sing, um, Are you here, Seth Tucker? Are you here? If you are, give whatever. So it's this horrible song. And everybody has to do it. And the kids are just mortified and it's terrible. And your, your hot second cousin has to see you <laughs> sing. But, the, but the, the reply, you had to sing a reply. Yes, we're here. Fellow Tuckers, yes, we're here. We wouldn't miss this party, never fear. We're loyal and we're true, just the same as all of you. Yes, we're here, fellow Tuckers. Yes, we're here, here, here. <laughs> so, Bill... 
I don't believe that your source, your singing, that your father's singing was that weird. Let that sounds okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is kind of going, um, and it'd be weird if I stand up. Um, what I'm going to talk about a little bit is the things they carried, sort of how I came to that book, um, why I think Tim O'Brien was such a huge um, influence, and why he should be a, a huge influence for writers of short short fiction, or I would also argue poetry. And then I'll talk a little bit about a craft book that if I were to say, like, Tim O'Brien, the things they carried were the was the book that really let you know that there's no limitations to topic or style, um, then this would be the prophylactic to that. Um, in a lot of ways, Je- uh, Jeremy Stern tells you what you shouldn't be doing in fiction, and so I'll read a little bit about that as well. Um, but I'm going to mostly focus on one story in this book. Can you hear me through this? Um, and I'm going to read some passages that I think are particularly fine, but then I'm going to also read them for, from a point of view of craft and how, how you write. And so this is really the, the, the book that made me believe that I could write, um, believe that it was okay to write, believe that it was okay to write big T truth versus small T truth rather than uh, paying more attention to my own um, stories as a soldier. I think uh, specifically for me, I was, I was worried that I would tell lies in my fiction, which is ridiculous, right? I mean, that makes no sense. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, and so this is called How to Tell a True War Story. Has anybody read The Things They Carried? So a lot of fiction writers have read this book. Um, the Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. And what I'm going to read is How to Tell a True War Story, which I think um, has value as a great war story, but it's also a great craft story. Um, So let me start off, and sorry about the language. Um, A true war story is never moral. It does not instruct nor encourage virtue, nor suggest models for proper human behavior, nor restrain men from doing the things men have always done. If a story seems moral, do not believe it. If, it. if at the end of a war story you feel uplifted, or if you feel that some small bit of rectitude has been salvaged from the larger waste, then you have been made the victim of a very old and terrible lie. There is no rectitude whatsoever. There is no vir- virtue. As a, as a first rule of thumb, therefore, you can tell a true war story by its absolute and uncompromising allegiance to obscenity and evil. And this is one of the characters who has written uh, a letter to a dead comrade who never gets, or a letter to the sister of a dead comrade that never gets a reply back. So I'm going to have to say coos. So I'm sorry about that. Um, Listen to Rat Kiley. Coos, he says. He does not say bitch. He certainly does not say woman or girl. He says coos. Then he spits and stares. He's 19 years old. It's too much for him. So he looks at you with those big, sad, gentle, killer eyes and says coos because his friend is dead and because it's so incredibly sad and true, she never wrote back. The sister he's talking about. You can tell a true war story if it embarrasses you, if you don't care for obscenity, you don't care for the truth. If you don't care for the truth, watch how you vote. Send guys to war, they come home talking dirty. Listen to rat. 
Jesus Christ, man, I write this beautiful fucking letter. I slave over it. And what happens? The dumb coos never writes back. And I remember reading this book, and I remember reading this story, and I remember thinking most of my narratives would never have gone that far, that I was holding back all the time with my own writing because I was afraid that if I gave too much detail of the characters and the situation, um, that it would be too much for the reader and maybe too much for myself. And so for this, this book was really the, f- the first book. And I was in graduate school when I first read this book. Um, so I was reading Cheever. And I was also reading all the things that you don't want to read to be a writer, which is grad school books about <laughs> writing. And I was also reading you know, 18th century British lit and things that really didn't make me want to write. So if you're, if you're, if you're a person that wants to write... Just skip that stuff. <laughs> go, go, like, grab. <laughs> Talk later. Um, I get, I'm saying that from a writer's point of view that uh, grad school sometimes teaches you, uh, it, it, you read all the stuff that is not helping you become the writer, the current writer that you are. It's kind of teaching you all the things to be as- afraid of, uh, you know, all the great classical writing. Um, Anyway, let me read another couple pieces. And I'm going to change it a little bit. And I'm going to read it from the point of view of a crafted book. And now where did I put it? Here you go. So later in the story, in many cases, a true war story cannot be believed. If you believe it, be skeptical. It's a question of credibility. Often the crazy stuff is true and the normal stuff isn't because the normal stuff is necessary to make you believe the truly incredible craziness. And I remember reading that line and then reading it again like this. In many cases, a true story cannot be believed. And I think that's what we're all searching to write, whether it's fiction or not, is a true, war, is a true story cannot be believed. If you believe it, be skeptical. It's a question of credibility. Often the crazy stuff is true and the normal stuff isn't because the normal stuff is necessary to make you believe the truly incredible craziness. Uh, you know, I always think about an example of that being um, Flannery O'Connor's story, Good Country People, where uh, in the first scene, basically, a girl has, is trying to have sex with a Bible salesman in the loft and he steals her prosthetic leg. <laughs> right? Um, those are the stories that s- sort of stick with you. Um, <laughs> so then I'll, I'll close with the craft book, which I, I can't, hi- I, I highly recommend this. It feels a little bit remedial sometimes to me, but when I write a story, I often go back to it and check to make sure. I didn't write one, one of the stories that Stern tells you not to write. <laughs> Which I'll preface this with, with all the rules that he gives you. He says, don't believe any of the, the don'ts above. So he gives you all the rules for things you shouldn't do and then tells you at the very end, but also don't believe it. So am I going over time? No, you're not. OK. You're the moderator. <laughs> I am the moderator. <laughs> So the first part of this book explains all the different types of stories that are out there. And it kind of gives you this idea of some of the stories that have been written 
and that these are the sort of tropes or the, or the styles that, or the ways of telling a story that exist. But then at the end of the first chapter, he starts talking about the stories that he as a teacher has seen over and over and over again that just don't work. And I just think it's funny because as soon as I start reading this, some of you guys are going to be like, oh, that's why that story doesn't work. <laughs> so the bathtub story. Has anybody heard this? It's where in the bathtub story, a character stays in a single relatively comp- confined space for the whole story. Nothing happens. While in that space, the character thinks, remembers, worries, plans, whatever, but there's never any action for your reader to ever snatch or grab onto. Um, I've written that story. Um, I have written... And only later realized I, I, I often write, oh, where is it? The Weird Herald story. <laughs> so weird heralds are stories focused on a character who is strange and different. I just wrote one of these like six months ago. <laughs> and I went through and was like, oh, it's a weird herald story. That's why nobody cares about that story. Is that herald as in the name? Herald, a weird herald, just some weird character. <laughs> Which, you know, you think about uh, Confederacy of Dunces, that succeeds, that's a novel. I guess what I'm talking about is a short story. And, and Ignatius J. Riley, actually, you kind of care about him because he's so... Anybody? Has it, have people read Confederacy? Yeah. Great book if you haven't read it. So another one to add to your list. Um, and then I'll close with Hobos in Space Story. <laughs> Here, a small number of characters, perhaps only two, isolated from ordinary society, talk a lot about life while not doing very much. <laughs> which is all my stories <laughs> and all my poems probably but anyway again this is uh, Jeremy Stern making shapely fiction and the things they carried by Tim O'Brien and, and I think we have time for Q&A yeah. mm-hmm. <coughs> excuse me maybe maybe this should have called the, been called the prose writers from Wyoming and one other guy that's right Weird. Poet. Now, what is it with you guys? Are or you gonna... three real writers and one other dude. Yeah. Yippee tie yay. Which one? No, we're trying to be tough. Trying to be tough. Trying to be tough. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> Good night. Uh, what am I reading? Um, Swamplandia. Oh, um, I just started it. What else have I read recently? At, um, Telegraph Avenue by Michael Chabon. Did you like it? Uh, it was overwritten, I thought, compared to, to uh, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which I thought was really great. And it's a great book. You should pick it up. But it's, I think it's... He's... He's fucking way too smart. And then he knows it, and then he kind of holds it over you and makes you feel bad about yourself as a writer. That's right. Don't do that to Wyoming. I never have that feeling. (laughs) 
this well, I, I teach so much that I uh, I have to prepare lots of classes, and that I I often teach things that um, I want to master. Uh, and this this year, the books that I read that I had to teach that had the biggest impact on me that I had read well, I'd read some of them before, but I'd never read them in the way that I read them in order to teach them. And one was Joyce's Ulysses, which I uh, taught twice this year. And then another one uh, was Sophie's Choice by William Styron, which I want to say is a complete and total masterpiece, uh, an amazing book. Another one was the memoir, uh, So This is a Man, Sequesto Este Nolomo, uh, which is, was originally titled, uh, I guess, Survival in Auschwitz. It's also called Survival in Auschwitz by Primo, Primo Levi, Survival in Auschwitz. It's a comedy, um, <laughs> you know. And then in... And then, uh, you know, in terms of, of poetry, although all these books have poetry in them, I think probably the best recent books I've read, frankly, are some books by my colleagues at Western, David Yezzy's Birds of the Air and uh, Ernest Hilbert's All of You on the Good Earth, which are just outstanding books of new poetry. And there's, there's a lot of other stuff, of course. but. Uh, no, no, women, as far as I'm concerned, they really don't exist. I mean, I fuck them occasionally, but have you ever asked a hostile question? That's my... I went to a conference recently and met this woman who had published a book with the University of Nebraska Press called The Days Are Gods. Her name is Elizabeth Stevens, and I am so blown away by this book. It, it's voice. It's all about voice. And she starts out in L.A., and uh, she has been living there and working in the movie industry, but only as a gopher-type person, serving coffee and that sort of thing. And, and her view of that is really uh, unique. But, again, I say it's the voice. And, and so she decides, I think it's the stuntmen. She's married uh, but the stuntmen and their uh, lives outside of L.A. appeal to her so much. So she and her husband begin to go out into the San Fernando Valley and hang out at the bars out there, and they're like outsiders out there, but she gets to be around people who are not from L.A., <laughs> and, it, and she really likes it. So she, she winds up going to graduate school in Utah, and so it's a story of her moving to this town in Utah. I'm not even actually sure which one it is. I'm really bad about my which schools are in Utah. Might be St. George. Does that sound right? Is there a school in St. George? Anyway, what happens when she when she meets the Mormons? And basically the Mormons are really nice to her. And she's never had anybody be really nice to her before in the way that the Mormons are really nice to her. So that sort of turns what your ex- expectations on its head right there. But anyway, it's just a very good book and I'm loving it. It's called Days, The Days Are Gods. And then um, you mentioned Swamplandia, so I have to give that a plug. I mean, I was just totally blown away. They didn't give a Pulitzer Prize in that year. Was it just last year? And I'm thinking, well, that was plenty good. Why didn't you give it to that? I mean, what's wrong with these people? It was just amazing. And I, I want to mention Elizabeth Strout's Amy and Isabel because a lot of people have probably read Olive Kittredge. So I did that, and I really loved Olive Kittredge, and so I wanted to read something else. So I read Amy and Isabel, and that was way better. It was really a fantastic book. 
So I'm looking forward to reading the Burgess Brothers. And I want to, leave, I want to read uh, Clara Massoud's The Woman Upstairs. I hear that that's fabulous. My turn. Um, I always go completely blank when someone says, what are you reading? But um, for our intensive this week, we've been going through um, word by word um, Thomas Savage's The Power of the Dog, which was reissued about 10 years ago. Um, set in 1920s Montana, a uh, ranching family and another family that moves in with them. Um, incredibly intense and beautifully shaped all the way through with one of the most shocking endings you'll ever read. You just like almost fall over when you, when you read the last paragraph. Um, as far as Pulitzer Prize, the, one of the other finalists for that was um, that didn't win was Dennis Johnson's Train Dreams. Um, absolutely gorgeous, very tiny little book, um, and reads like a giant novel. Um, again, set up in um, Idaho. I think that one is set in Idaho, in Montana. Is that right, Sue? Okay. And um, is what? Not Wyoming? No, just nearby. It's Wyoming adjacent. Um, and. Um, the Remains of the Day, Pale View of, Pale View of Hills, a bunch of Ish- Ishiguro lately also. The purity of it is um, just fr- frightens me, and I probably can't learn anything from it because it just frightens me. I can't figure out how to do it. But I love it. I love how... Um, what's that? Um, it's the name of it. It's an author, Ish- Ishiguro. Just as it sounds, and um, actually, the the one that had the deepest impact on me, I read like five of them, was um, "Never Never Let Me Go." I don't know if you guys have read that book. Yeah. Absolutely, um, it's kind of overwhelming, almost. Um, I like him. <laughs> oh, I haven't read the new one. Because you were talking about how you don't really like plain speech. Yeah. And so you, I mean, that'd be interesting to hear what When you, you go through Kent Hurup, though, it's, um, it's very evocative. It sounds plain on the surface, but when you start to take apart the paragraphs, they have an incredible amount of information in them. Um, just through like the way the door is closed or the way the sun hits something, so he is actually pretty rich. I think I've, I felt pretty at home in his voice. I think. Any other questions? <clears throat> oh, I already said right. You've already lost. You've <laughs> lost interest completely. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I was thinking about as as they were talking, I, I teach a language of war class, and so I've been reading, and I don't normally, it's going to seem like that's all I read now, because that's what I'm talking about, but um, Fobbit by David Abrams. Has anybody read that? I love David Abrams. Um, beyond just being a swell guy, it's a great book, and it's, it's basically about the Iraq war, but it's um, told from the... Uh, point of view of the people in the forward ob- uh, operate, operating bases and it's sort of like a catch-22 
comedic tragic novel it's really 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 well written um i was impressed with it the yellow birds by um kevin Kevin powers was if you want to read a novel that is lyrically beautiful it's uh i mean the first hundred pages are poetry but it's also a great it's a great novel probably the the first two pages i think are the most lyrically dense poetic language in a novel that I've probably seen in 20 years. It's really beautiful. There's another David Abram. I I know about your David Abrams, but I haven't read him. I need to. But there's David Abram, and he's a nonfiction writer, and he's a thinker. And uh, he wrote this book called The Power of the Sensuous. And it's just about how there is no boundary between us and everything else on the planet. But he writes about it in a way that's very convincing, and it's very intellectual. And uh, he develops a lot of theories about how we got distanced from nature. And, and he traces it all back to written language, actually, as being the real culprit. So it's, it's a really interesting book. Other questions or books that you want to share? It's a good venue for that. There's one book that's come out, or it's coming out on Monday, or it is already out. Gary Schombacher's Crossing Pur- Purgatory, which he wrote in Lighthouse Workshops. <laughs> and, um, uh, you're in for a treat. It's um, it set in, I think, 1870. What, what is the date? 1868. Um, heads up the Santa Fe Trail to Ben's Old Fort, and then it's in that area. Um, authentic, rich, moving, gorgeous. And he's going to be giving a reading here, right? Yeah, at the book fair. At the book fair. Go ahead. You know, it, it, poetry, I think, is somewhat different from prose in that um, it moves more slowly, perhaps. Um, and the books that I think last are very rare, very, very rare, and none of them are bestsellers, uh, or almost none of them, and the ones that are probably aren't worth too much. Uh, and a bestseller in poetry is, you know, you sell 10,000 books, you're, you might as well be going to Saturn, you know, you'd <laughs> You're, you're a, a rock star. The, uh, and the kinds of things that I, affect, I think affect young people, and a lot of what we're talking about here is books that we read when we were probably before the age of 20. Um, one comes across oddly um, and surprisingly, and if they're not canonical, they probably haven't been written, most of them haven't been written, especially in the world of poetry, that recently, because it takes a long time for good poetry to percolate up. And uh, you know, if you think about it... Um, not a lot really lasts, uh, which is okay, which is okay. Most of what we write is unlikely to last the way Dante lasts or Shakespeare lasts or Jane Austen lasts or whoever. And um, I, th- I think those are the things that it's very interesting to hear those stories from. And I, I don't know what any of your stories are in this regard, but um, if you look back at the things that have had that impact on you, that's, that's, it's an interesting question um, where you have that kind of an encounter uh, it's quite important, really. Uh, and in the case of poetry, I think they tend to be things that were, well, they probably stood some kind of a test of time before they make it to your doorstep. 
So who is a young poet now who you think will stand the test of time? I, well, what do you mean by young? Alive or? Like, I don't know. <laughs> young, younger than you. <laughs> you mean under 30? Is that what you're... Under 60. Oh, it's... Uh, well, okay. One, so one who is... 30. Well, under 30, I don't know. There's Alicia Stallings, who just won a MacArthur last year and has won every other award except the Pulitzer, I guess. And she's, she's under 50, which is, you know, practically... Um, poets don't hit puberty till they're 50. I mean, it's... Uh, and she lives in Greece. She was a classics major. She just translated last year Lucretius's uh, On the Nature of Things. Um, I'd like to point out she is a woman. Uh, uh, last time I checked... And she's, she's, uh, she's absolutely brilliant. I mean, her Greek and Latin are just... Alicia Stallings, although she goes by the pen name of A.E. Stallings. And she lives in, uh, she lives in um, Athens. And her poems are... Well, I mean, she's had... Uh, you know, Wilbur, I know, had a big impact on her. And her verses are... I mean, they're just... They're like diamonds. They're perfect. And uh, she's truly... Truly, spectacularly good. I don't know how long they're going to last, though. I mean, you have to wait, but they're, they're certainly good. I mean, really good. Uh, and uh, so I think she's got a shot, for sure. She's, she's younger than me. But <laughs> well, it's getting really late, but I want to say one thing about craft, craft books. Isn't it? Oh, is this, is this when we're supposed to stop? middle of the afternoon. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Carry on. We got we got we got twenty eight hundred words to go yet. Right. Um, I just wanted to mention. Craft, uh, we talked about books that were about craft. Well, there's a a couple essays about craft that were really helpful to me, and one of them was by Joan Didion, and it was Why I Write. And the thing that was very helpful there was how she talked about images and how they work within her sort of within her subconscious, she will remember these things, these images, and she won't know why. But that's why she writes, is to figure out what it is about that image. And so she just lets the image rule, and she says you have to lie low, and you have to let the images that shimmer in your mind just sort of evolve. But you have to just sort of keep quiet and and let the image do its work. Um, so that was very influential. And another one that was very inf- influential to me was Patricia Hampel's Memory and Imagination. You can get both of these essays online for free. You know, it's easy to download them. And uh, Memory and Imagination was also about images and memory and how she talked about being a young a girl in school and the things that she remembered and the images that stuck with her. But then she started... And then she would write it up. And so she gave an example of how she had written this thing up. And then she would go back and she'd look at the things she'd written up and she'd, t- and she'd say, well, that wasn't really true. That didn't really happen. That didn't really happen. That didn't really happen. But it was what her memory sort of compelled her to write. Then the real writing took place when she began to interrogate the first draft and go, well, Why? You know, what was it in me that made me want to tell it that way when, in fact, it didn't really happen that way? And that's, what, that's what's really interesting. So, yeah.
It's like me. I canceled my New Yorker subscription so I could read all of the old New Yorkers that were sitting around, you know. <laughs> There's too much prose generated and poetry, too, probably. Anybody else? Oh, I keep trying to pass it that way. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.